Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I'm doing my very best today because, uh, how am I doing, guys? Am I doing okay? My response time, a little bit slow? Well, the answers you're giving are just astounding. (laughs) They are. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. you. I just have a raging headache all day. Not that you guys care. Well, yeah, because as you can see, my head got liquid nitrogen poured on it. You seen uh, that, Jeff? Ooh. Oh, I see uh, oh, yeah, a couple. Of, you had that done a couple months ago, well, too, didn't there you? Were some, there were some touch-up spots. So, oh, okay. you know, it's a good thing to go to the dermatologist and get checked out. And so they're burning off. I've rarely seen head. somebody that had a raging headache as joyful as you are, brother. I, <laughs> I get to be here with you guys doing guide talk. Come on, that's fun. <laughs> so I'm suffering from my craft. My uh, heart goes We out, like yeah. it. Yeah. We're I, impressed. Good, good. Uh, Hour two of Guy Talks, let me know what questions you have. There's some great questions coming in, and I love them. So thank you for doing that. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Can a Christian still struggle with submitting completely to God? Well, I think so from this standpoint. The salvation is one thing, okay? So you, you... Submit yourself to Jesus, you have salvation. The rest of our life is growing up as a disciple to know Jesus, to be like Jesus, to make disciple of others. There, In any given day, I'm not joyful every time through the day. I'm not always confident of everything I do through the day. There are times people do things to me as a pastor I get really irritated with, and then I have to check myself and say, wait a minute, that's not very Christ-like to think like that. So it is an up and a down process. The key is, and this is what I honestly believe, you know, it's like in the marathon. They always say, you don't have to win the race, but you need to finish the race. And each day we need to finish the race of coming back to Jesus and saying, forgive me, I want to be like you, help me to grow up or deal with this issue over here, whatever it may be. I'm often asked um, the question, look, I've saved. I thought it was going to be easier. <laughs> what, what happened here? Why am I still struggling with certain areas? And the way that I explain it to them, I said, look, um, before you came to Christ, you were under the bondage of the enemy. You had no power in and of yourself to have any victory. And even if you did have victory, it didn't last very long. So the minute you received Jesus Christ, that power of the enemy was broken. So what are you dealing with now? Well, first of all, before you came to Christ, you built up patterns of thinking, ways of acting, habits uh, that are embedded deep in your soul and the way in which you respond to situations, circumstances, or events. They attend you into your new relationship with Jesus Christ, but they absolutely have no power over you. That's why we need sanctification. That's why the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers us to eradicate those those habits, those habitual patterns that we lived for before, to not no, no longer live, as Paul says, as, a, as the Gentiles, but to live as now a, a person of light. 
So there's this progressive sanctification, this incremental changes that need to take place as you grow and you mature in Jesus Christ, and that's the eradication of those habits and those patterns that they can and replacing with the truth and living in that same direction over an extended period of time. Well done, Greg Borgon. If John 3.16 is the salvation verse, if you believe you're saved, I think Galatians 2.20 is at the heart of our sanctification uh, process that you were just talking about, Greg. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So this life that you live now is lived by faith. If you are trying to live the Christian life, stop. Because as one commentator said that I love, I love this line, living the Christian life isn't hard, it's impossible. Only Christ can do it. So we don't try in our own power to live out this holy, sanctified life, but as we die to ourselves, he lives in and through us. Don't you know that you've been crucified with Christ and the sin that once was you were in bondage to, as you were just describing about, you've been set free from that. But here's kind of the rub. The only person who ever did this perfectly was Jesus Christ himself. He's the only one that ever walked this earth walking by perfect faith. All the rest of us are going to fall short. But if you want to get closer, stop trying to live the Christian life and die to yourself and let Christ live in and through you. One of my favorite passages is 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. Now, what he's referring to is, of course, Moses had to wear a veil on his face because he didn't want anyone to see that the radiance of God was dissipating from his countenance, and he, he wore a veiled face. But now that we are uh, born of God and the Spirit of God lives in us, that glory is within us. So with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed in the same image from one degree to another, which means incremental change. It means progressive change. That's what sanctification is all about. But it's not of your own doing, for this comes from the Lord, the passage says, who is the Spirit. Well, it's interesting, too. I love John 17, 3. Now, this is eternal life. They know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The word know is the Greek word, as you know, gnosko. It's the same word used for husband and wife when they go on a honeymoon. Mm. Now, we're not talking about sexuality here, but it is that intimacy of knowing— and if you think about it, isn't that our goal in life? The intimacy of our life is to become less like ourselves, and to know Jesus more and more so we become more like him in this life. But we have our ups and downs. We have our good days. We have our bad days. That's why, again, and being a pastor for all these years, um, I look at the church and I say, how have we missed the point? Because most churches are built around good sermons, uh, great music, you know, that kind of thing, nice buildings, uh, youth programs, when we are to be a body of people that are encouraging, loving, challenging, you know, talking to one another about the deepest needs of our life and saying, Jeff, you can do it. Yeah, you messed up, Jeff, but Jesus is still there for you because if we don't have that, the devil will be there saying, you've blown it this time, buddy. And teaching. I would add one more to your list. Obviously, I know you know this because... You know, like Romans says, do not be conformed by the patterns of this world, but be transformed 
by the renewal of your mind. All those old patterns that you had before you were saved, there's still shadows of those, oh, you know, right. deep in it's your risen. soul. And so how do we get rid of those patterns? We study the Word of God. The Word of God will transform us through the power of His Holy Spirit. Nice job, gentlemen. Here's my next question. I know at least a couple of times that Abraham had Sarah tell people that she was his sister rather than his wife because he was afraid they might kill him because she was so beautiful. I understand that she was and then his half-sister, but he didn't tell the complete truth that she was his wife also. Why didn't Abraham have enough faith in God that God would protect him rather than him having feeling the need to lie. You mean there are stories in the Bible where people fell short of God's perfect plan for their uh, lives and his ways? Uh, so I, know. I, I think this is simply a, a, a one more case where someone who follows God fell short of his, his standard and his way. We, we have this conception that if we reach a certain level of faith that will be impervious to any wrongdoing, any wrong thinking, but we're we still are are dealing with the flesh, so I think it's just a depiction of this is what he was struggling with at the time. Whether he was emotionally drained, physically drained, or just fearful, um, he he did something that was wrong, which gives us all hope. I mean, if if Abraham, the person who was recognized for his faith, um, blew was it. in the Hall of Faith chapter, yeah, right? and blew it. That's there's hope for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I agree, and I think the point that I think I missed for a long time and I finally came to realize it, is that the Bible has a huge contrast in it. You know, we love Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, King David, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Peter, all of, you know, the New Testament. But they're not the point of the Bible. They're not the heroes of the Bible. There's only one who was consistent all the way through, and his name is Jesus. And so the hero of the Bible is Jesus. It's not Abraham. I mean, praise God. God for Abraham. I hope I can sit down and have dinner with him one day. And I admire <laughs> him lunch. for what probably lunch. I, yeah, I yeah, probably <laughs> I admire him for what he did. But he's not my savior. And I think the problem is sometimes we read the Bible about these these people and we don't realize that the Lord is telling us the truth about people. No matter how faithful you are, you will still fall short. And everybody all through the Old Testament and New needs a savior. And that Savior is Jesus. You know, there's that picture where Jesus is talking to the Pharisee, and they say, our father is Moses. And he goes, he goes, no, you're missing it. If, you, if Moses was really your father, then you'd believe me because he testified about me. It's not that people um, need to be adverse to um, observing how somebody has lived their life, and they live their life with honor and authenticity sure. and integrity. Uh, that's something to to value. I mean, in Hebrews thirteen seven is a powerful passage. Thirteen seven and eight says, "Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God. Now consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith." So there's value in being able to to identify people who are walking with the Lord and who end up finishing well. And there's one quality that's true of every one of these leaders who finishes well, and it's found in the following verse, which almost seems like it kind of got just dropped in there. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So it's all about consistency. It's all about in the same direction over an extended period of time so that the behavior and your thoughts uh, become uh, part of the fabric of your soul and you operate on them without even thinking. So these leaders that finished well, 
that had a life, probably not a perfect life, but a life of consistency, uh, they're the ones that we ought to be modeling our life after, as well as, as you've mentioned, the most important one being Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. That verse, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, was the first verse I learned when I had to study Greek. Hmm. And it has stuck with me to this very day, both the Greek as well as the English, because for me, that's really, for me, the life verse, that this Lord, whom I serve, is the same Lord who Abraham served, whether he knew it or not, in full totality, and the same one who's coming again. And that's the only place I look. You took Greek? Yeah, I did. It took me when I took it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was something, it wasn't was it? It was not easy for me. No, it was a challenge. <laughs> All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, lots more guy talk. Let me know what you'd like uh, me to ask on your behalf. 877-933-2484. Any question? 877-933-2484. I was going to read for me. Hi there and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at myfaithradio.com. Welcome back to Guide Talk. So glad you're with us today, and we are glad to be here. Uh, Jeff Verdorn, Greg Borgon, Tom Parrish. As I look around the table, those are the faces looking back at me. And they're ready <laughs> to answer your questions, 877-933-2484. we got some great questions coming in, gentlemen. If the rapture happened tonight, would my unsaved friend still have a chance to be saved tomorrow? Yes. That's good news. Absolutely. Revelation describes a... Uh, the much of the details about this time of tribulation that's going to be coming upon the world. But in Revelation chapter 7, it says that there was a great multitude of people that came out of this great tribulation yep. from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So we know from God's word, from the book of Revelation, that many will be saved during that time, and we will see them up in heaven. So God is a God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances, eighth chances. Uh, he wishes none to perish. And that's one of the great purposes of the tribulation. One, it's the completion of God's judgment on Israel. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's Daniel's 70th week of judgment that God has proclaimed on Israel. So it's the completion of that. He's also pouring his wrath out on the world, but he also wants people to be saved. There's an old adage, there's no atheists in the foxhole, right? And during a time of tribulation, people tend to turn to God. My wife and I were on the deck this morning just chatting after I read the news and was uh, upset with what I was reading. And I said, you know what we prove over and over again, honey? Man is incapable of managing himself. Why is it that we always have to learn the hard way? Why is it that God has to be more and more dramatic to get our attention? What is there about our human constitution that makes us so oblivious to the obvious and we need to be hit over the head? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. And I don't think we do. I'm a pastor. I preach. I teach. I don't think I do a good job at really getting through every Sunday to people that this Jesus who died for you is doing everything in his power to give you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to know him. 
And we've got to help people understand that. I think some people, I know I had one lady say to me, you know, when I was younger, I, I did these things and they were really wrong. And I think the Lord gave up on me. Well, the devil loves that one. Of course he hasn't given up. He's still there, still calling. And uh, that's what we want people to hear. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's God's heart for people, right? Yeah. And, and I have been asked by people, well, why doesn't God make himself more obvious? Why doesn't he reveal himself more clearly to this world? And it's like, you're not listening. You're not, you're not seeing. I mean, look at creation. Romans 1 says that all creation declares his glory. Yeah. He says he puts eternity in the hearts of man. He says he writes the requirements of his law on mankind's heart. He sent his son into the world, God in the flesh, and he died and rose again. That that truth has been proclaimed for 2,000 years. Has he made himself known to us? Yes, he has made himself. And he's given us his word. And by the way, he's he's raised up a body of, of, of believers who are supposed to be ministers of reconciliation, preaching this gospel to the whole world. You know, what I've shared repeatedly with men under my ministry, I said, look, guys, the enemy will always remind you of the failures of your past. Of course. God wants to bring you to the victory of your future. And the struggle is in the present, but God is God and Satan is not. So if you're being shamed about your past, God's not in the business of shaming. He's in the business of conviction. That's of the enemy. It often comes in a first-person thought in your own mind trying to derail you, trying to marginalize you, to keep you on the back pew, not engaged at all. But the enemy will always remind you of the failures of your past. God wants to bring you to the victory of your future. Nicely done, Greg Borgon. Thank you for that comment. Next question in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 14. When David danced, was it in front of the procession or at the back? And what was meant by before the Lord with all his might? Well, for the Baptists, it isn't dancing. It's simultaneous coordinated. I <laughs> <laughs> couldn't resist, but yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, most Lutherans I know can't even raise their hands, so they're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting question. What I, I'd, be, I'd want to ask a follow-up question. Why, why would you draw the distinction? Was he in the back or was he in the front? I don't know. Because he was, was he thinking about shepherds and... New Testament times and and how they led, um, I'd, I'd have to get some more information to be able to answer yeah. that question. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just maybe address the part where he danced before the Lord with all his might. And that's an interesting phrase that's in the New King James Version. Mm-hmm. And his wife was unhappy about it. Oh, very unhappy. <laughs> I'm reading it right now. She despised him in her heart. Yeah. I mean, he was an emotional individual david i mean you could imagine him doing something like that Mm -hmm. just dancing with utter joy i've seen some people dance that way i wouldn't want to dance that way uh, given what i saw but people can be overcome by joy and exhilaration and and it's just an outpouring of through your physical limbs and so i i can picture that yeah i've seen some dancing at wedding receptions and trust me nobody (laughs) wants to see that (laughs) so we have at my church. There's a, a couple folks in the front, and I go to a larger church. And sometimes there'll be people up there, especially during the worship time, dancing uh, out of their seat, kind of in the aisles. And you can imagine what what all of our us Midwesterners think about that, right? Um, and I tr- and I think of this passage about David dancing with all of his might. 
And so the the comments that I might have in my own brain when that happens or when I see somebody, because I don't dance in the aisles during worship at my church. I don't know if you guys do. Yet. Uh, yet. <laughs> but I think of that passage and 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 any kind of thought I might have about, you know, my thoughts on whether or not that's appropriate or not melt away because I think of David mm. dancing with all of his might. I'm all for the I'm all for the dancing, the joy, the the clapping, you know, um, offer a clap offering to the Lord. What we have to all be careful with is that in those settings, because I've worked with a lot of Pentecostal churches and there are a lot of Pentecostal Lutherans out there that are charismatic, when it becomes the normal, I think we're missing the point. I think Greg hit the nail on the head. When the Lord gets you enthused inside, then we should welcome that and not put it down. But to give the impression that, hey, why aren't you dancing at this moment to everybody that's there? That's a good point. Is a mistake to make. We shouldn't do that. Let people express it in within certain structures, because Paul talked about order in the worship service. Mm-hmm. There's a place for that, but it's to honor the Lord, not just simply for people to express themselves. And for the record, I don't do any dancing that involves my body moving. <laughs> just, do you just, tap your and, foot? And we're all grateful for that. You, oh, what? yeah. You okay. always tap your foot during I, some oh, yeah, worship. Tap my foot. You mean square right. dancing's out yeah. too? Yeah. All right. Oh, boy. Gentlemen, here's the next question. Why did Mordecai refuse to bow down to Haman? Another one of those why questions. Um, I think he had some. I think he had some idol that Mordecai didn't want to bow down to. Is that it? I think that was it. Is it time for a break yet? Um, <laughs> actually, it's getting really close to a break. So maybe we can do some digging. Maybe we can the break. read that yeah, passage. No, let's and come do back. a little bit here. Yeah. Um, cool. So we'll, we'll do that. We're gonna. Uh, we still want your questions. There's lots of time left in Guy Talk this uh, half hour. So 877-933-2484 is the number. 877-933-2484. So we, ha- because the month of June is the month of forgiveness, and we've got June 28th coming up, and that's going to be a big day across the network. We're going to be talking about forgiveness and Every conversation will be focused on what the Bible says about forgiving others. And I can pretty much guarantee you're going to be encouraged and you're going to find a way to try to find peace in your life if you're not forgiving somebody and you know you need to forgive somebody. And you probably have that person pop into your mind right now as I even talk about it, that you know the person that's come to mind, that you need to ask forgiveness. So anyway, you can learn uh, more about the Day of Forgiveness at MyFaithRadio.com. We've got some great resources. You can learn what the Bible says about forgiveness and and why forgiving yourself or people that you have hurt is so important and the practical steps you can take. And we do have some pretty helpful resources. We've got some podcasts and some articles, even some videos to help you find healing and peace. And you can do that at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll come back after the break. We're going to continue with Guy Talk. There's some great questions coming in. I think we've got one that's stumped the panel so far, which means I'm getting ice cream tonight. So we'll be right back. 877-933-2484.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome to Guy Talk. We are uh, enjoying your questions, so thank you so much for sending them over. And we're going to try to stump the panel today. I don't think we're going to do it, but we did ask a question that they had to do some digging on. And that question is, why did Mordecai refuse to bow down to Haman? Learn about that in the book of Ruth. I'm sorry, uh, Esther. So I, I guess I'll start here because uh, I think if you go back to chapter two, so the the not bowing down is in chapter three, in Esther chapter three. In Esther chapter two, at the end of the book, it says in verse 22, but Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther. And and so Mordecai found out about the plot when he was sitting at the gate. We go to then to Esther chapter 3, and it starts Haman's plot to destroy the Jews. So Mordecai, at the time that he refuses to bow down to Haman, had already found out about this big plot that he had to destroy the Jewish people. So there's one motivation that if you fought, just found out that this guy is going to wants to destroy all the Jews, why would you bow down to him? Yeah, I'm reading from the English Standard Version notes I have in front of me here. Mm-hmm. According to Herodotus, bowing to superiors was a normal part of Persian court etiquette rather than the act of worship. Mordecai did not bow because he was a Jew. The text does not give any more reason for Mordecai's refusal to bow, but given Haman's ancestry and animosity to the Jews, Mordecai apparently felt that he could not bow to him without compromising his identity as a Jew. It's also possible that Haman was claiming some kind of divine status, which we have no indication in Scripture that that's the case, and Mordecai refused to give him that kind of honor. You know, you look at the Jews when they were in exile uh, in Babylon— uh, Persia, all that went on there. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is another example of people that said, we would rather die and serve our Lord, Yahweh, mm-hmm. than to bow down to you or to do what you command. And I think this is probably a portion of the same story, but Greg, you're absolutely right. It doesn't give us any more details that we can figure this out, but I, I believe it's there to keep reminding the people, uh, the Jewish people, that no matter how tough the times get, there's only one that you ultimately bow to, and that is the Lord himself. Great, uh, great input, guys. Thank you very much. Also, I had some other listeners chime in on that topic as well. There's a lot of smart people listening, just so you know. <laughs> all right. You guys are all expendable. <laughs> I'm just saying. I mean, I get some of these comments from listeners. Here goes the we ice cream. get that feeling from you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Second uh, Timothy 2.2. Are we supposed to be discipling everyone who receives Christ, or are we supposed to be picking and choosing? Our church is discipling, uh, our church is discipleship focused, and this has been on my heart. Great question. Great heart. I think the picture from Scripture is that anybody who believes in Jesus Christ is a disciple of Jesus Christ. A disciple is a learner, and um, one, as we were talking about earlier, one of the only ways I know how to grow in your faith and knowledge of him to be sanctified more and more, to have your life transformed more and more is by the study of, of his word. Uh, that's what a disciple does. He learns. So I think every single 
Christian is called to be a disciple, and we are called to be disciplers. Yeah. I think a lot of times people are terrified. Well, if I lead somebody to Christ, I, I wouldn't know how to disciple them. I don't know what to do. Well, I don't think that's always what's being asked for in totality here. The church is made up of a variety of people. So if I lead someone to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I, I don't feel I'm a really very good teacher, but I know, Jeff, you are, and you're in the church, I'm going to say, I want to go to that class with Jeff. I'd like you to come as we grow in our discipleship together. It's different than saying, hey, we got a guy at church that runs a class. Why don't you go? Discipling means that you walk alongside when you're discipling someone. And when you walk alongside them, you help them take those steps. Because the best discussions I've ever gotten into is after the Bible study with somebody in the car going home. And they'll say, did you hear what he said? Did he really mean that? Or is that really what the Bible's saying? And there you have an opportunity to come back and share. So it, it's a it's a group exercise. It's an individual exercise, but it's never one that any of us are called to neglect. You know, we're like spiritual sponges. Um, we can be filled up with nurture, with going to every Sunday school class, listening to every message. But sooner or later, the sponge becomes saturated. And so any more input is like water spilling on the side. So unless you wring that sponge out, you have no more room for new information. So I think this passage is getting at the fact that what you have learned, you need to pass on to others because I've got more things to teach you. So whenever you're passing on to others what you have learned, you're discipling someone. It's not a matter of a package or a 13-lesson um, uh, Sunday school uh, thing at all. It's a matter of you being a testimony, passing on what you have learned, because there's more in your sponge, you need to wring that out so you have room for more coming in. You know, I've been studying Scripture for over 30 years, and I am amazed at how many times I come to a page or a passage and it's going, have I ever read that before? Have I ever oh, come yeah. across that before? And I still have these aha moments mm-hmm. studying Scripture. I, I remember someone describing Scripture as being infinitely deep yeah. and that we'll have all of eternity to continue to study it. Isn't that a, just a fascinating thought? And that's why we need one another. I don't care how intellectual you are, how much education you've had, how well you did in your Greek class or your Hebrew <laughs> class. The bottom line is we need one another. And some of the people that have taught me the most in Christianity, and I'm a pastor, right? I, I'm a professor. I've taught. You know, The bottom line is some of these older ladies or men that basically worked a blue-collar job, but they will come up and say things after the sermon or in a class that absolutely blows me away. It only could have come from the Holy Spirit. And part of it is we have to continue to learn from one another and support one another in that process. Nicely done. All right, this next question, uh, Tom Parrish, I'm looking your direction, just so you know. You might be the only one eligible to answer this one. Because we were talking about the rapture earlier, and this listener said, ever since listening to Faith Radio... And changing churches, I've heard a lot about the rapture. But why is it that I never heard anything about the rapture when I went to a Lutheran church? I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that uh, a lot of, well, Lutheranism, and here's the problem. The pastors better be talking about the second coming. They better be talking about the fact that Jesus is going to return. In terms of the pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, you know, all of those, pre-millennial, amillennial, people are mixed on that. And so there are a lot of Lutherans simply have stayed away from trying to put that together into a cohesive package. Now, I appreciate what Jeff's done. I appreciate what others have done, and I study that. And I say, yeah, I can see a lot of that. 
But the Bible itself doesn't put it together in one chapter. And we read the chapter, and it just lays it out one step after another. We get a piece over here, like in, you know, Thessalonians about, you know, being caught up in the air. We get another piece in Revelation. Now, do I believe they all come together? Yes. But being the old photographer and cinematographer that I am, here's the problem. There's a big difference between watching a motion picture and, or instead going into a, a studio and seeing pictures hanging on the wall of the events that are in that movie. The, the events show you what happened. And you can admire that, but how does that event always connect with that event and that event? And Christianity has not had a cohesiveness on how all this goes together, as we all know, for a long time. Doesn't mean it's not right. Doesn't mean it's not true. But the one thing I would do, if you're in a Lutheran church and you're not hearing that Jesus is coming again, that ultimately you're going to have to give an account and that he is the Lord and Savior of all. If that isn't happening, get out of that Lutheran church or go to another church because Lutherans should be teaching that. And if you study Martin Luther, he taught a lot on that topic of Jesus coming again. All right. Next question, spiritual warfare. Let's talk about that. What's the best uh, way to fight? Is it mainly knowing the word and rebuking the lies with truth? Or can you recommend a resource? Well, uh, one resource is Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul says, stand firm then. With the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, which will extinguish all of those flaming darts from the enemy, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Uh, He says, stand firm then, so that when that day of evil comes, you will be able to take your stand. Not if that day comes, but when that day comes, you will stand. And it's God who makes you stand firm. It's his armor. It's his salvation. It's his righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. It's his word. Remember, he has fully dressed you and armed you as a believer in Christ. But obviously, the more you know of his word, um, you know, a wise man builds his house upon a rock. And when that storm comes, even though the winds blow and the wave comes, the man who's built his house on the rock will stand strong. Uh, uh, Two comments. Um, we're talking about uh, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10, and I find in that passage all the way oh, to Oh, did I say seven, 5, by the way? Uh, I, you did I, say 5. I'm sorry, Ephesians 6, thank yeah, you. Anyway, the it, it talks about standing firm more than once. And so when all is said and done, stand. When you feel the least capable, stand. So when you take a look at the armor of God— you're taking a look at several pieces of the armor, only one of which is an offensive weapon. All the others are for defense. The only offensive weapon is the sword, which is a metaphor for the Word of God. Mm -hmm. That's why the enemy wants to keep you away from the Word of God. He Mm -hmm. doesn't want you to master the Word of God. He doesn't want you to memorize it, to meditate on it, or to study it, because you will become his formidable foe when you do. So that's the last thing he wants in your hands is an offensive weapon because he wants to remain on the offense so you stay on the defense. You know, Greg, I've got a journal, and the title of the journal is Smart Things to Say. And on page 41, that's almost word for word what's in my journal, what you just said. Yeah, Yeah, I could have said that as well. Was, well, I'm sure you would have if really you had good. the opportunity. <laughs> I know, but, but I, I'm letting you talk instead. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate but that. But that was, that was really good. I've had to do a lot with this whole area of spiritual warfare and the demonic and the Twin Cities. It's not an easy place to do this in. Hmm. There's a lot going on here. I think for most Christians, and I'm in total agreement with you guys, 
all the answers are in the Word of God. But 95% of the Christians don't know how to amalgamate that into a response mm-hmm. to when it comes along. When the devil comes attacking, they don't know how to pull up Ephesians 6. They don't know how to do that. Um, I'm not here to ever push a book, and it's not my books, but the but Francis McNutt's book on deliverance from evil, He has he's now with the Lord, but he did a marvelous job, he and his wife, of putting that together in a way that has enabled me. I do seminars on this. Matter of fact, a week from tomorrow on Saturday at our church, we have a big seminar on apologetics and reaching out to Muslims. But I'm doing two sections on spiritual warfare. Now, what he taught me in that book was how, when I get into those situations, how do I respond with God's word? And he gave me select passages to come back with and to fight the devil with. And I will say this, I'm 73 years old, and in all the years I've been doing this, I've seen the power of the Lord over and over and over because I think I'm using the Word of God as it's intended to be used, not simply hoping it pull, I can pull it out or the Holy Spirit pulls it out when I'm in a bad situation. Can the Spirit pull it out? Yes. But, you know, it's kind of like it's hard for us to pull Scripture out of us if we haven't memorized it in the first That's place. Exactly. So you put it together. You know, it, oftentimes um, it's, it's easy for us in the moment of, of conflict to want to slap on the armor and unshield or unsheath the sword. But it takes time for you to get used to wearing the armor. It takes time for you to get used to using the Word of God as the sword of the Spirit. And so that means there has to be preliminary training that goes on. And we were kind of alluding that too when you pass on to others what you have learned about discipleship, about being adamant about being a student of God's Word so that you're prepared for the battle when it comes. I'm aware of one pastor um, when I attended her church for a while who didn't believe uh, that there was any such, such thing as spiritual warfare and took exception to, in, in our my ministry, Heart of Warrior Ministries, using warrior metaphors. And so, maybe I, I need to confess this, but I said to him, well, I said, take out your New Testament and I want you to rip out about one quarter of it. Hmm. Because you'll find that there is such a thing as spiritual warfare. And even Jesus himself is called a warrior. So we need to understand that there's a spiritual battle taking place in heavenly realms, and you have to be prepared for that. And you have to not only be able to wear the defensive elements of the armor, you need to learn how to wield the sword of the Spirit. So just a couple weeks ago, I taught on spiritual warfare. I brought a two-edged broadsword that's about four feet long to class, and I asked somebody to stand up and hold it. And I said, would you be able to fight and defend yourself with on any situation with that sword? Well, they could barely hold it. You have to be trained yes. in its use, what you were just describing. All right, we'll take a short break and then come back with more guy talk or guys who talk. They're doing a great job today because great questions, great power panel. Jeff, Greg, and Tom, let us know what questions you have. 877-933-2484. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com.
Okay, we have to drop that bumper music because Tom Paris was dancing in the studio. <laughs> and, uh, and nobody wants to see that again, okay? All right. Including me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen, here's a question. I heard a pastor say that each of us has our own unique gift, such as prophecy, etc. I'm saddened that I'm a senior citizen and do not know what my gift is. How can I discover it? Well, there are lots of instruments that can be taken that to give you an indication of your preferences. It's not a proof perfect that you have a spiritual gift, but the first thing you should do is I would advise you to the Heights instrument or maybe one of the others to identify what potentially could be your gift. And the only way that you know that you indeed have that spiritual gift is by seeking out opportunities to express it. Once you've been made aware that you may have this gift, the only proof in it is when you have an opportunity to use it. And the proof perfect is that the result, it produces a spiritual result. You can have a talent for something, but it doesn't necessarily produce a spiritual result. A spiritual gift in its expression will always produce a spiritual result. So seek out opportunities to find out if you indeed have that gift. And it says in Scripture that you either one or more gifts at the moment of your conversion. And that's very, very clear it's for the edification of the body, but primarily in Ephesians four eleven through 16, it's to produce Christ-likeness in followers of Christ through the expression of these gifts. Later this summer in Sunday school, I'm doing a several-week class. You'll discover your spiritual gifts. You'll discover your temperament. You'll discover your passions. And it is the combination of those that is exactly what you're talking about because people have told me, well, I identify as having the gift of you know, prophecy or whatever, but I don't know how to use it. Well, it's understanding the passion, the temperament that makes that work. Yeah. First um, Corinthians... God says that the Spirit gives spiritual gifts just as he determines. And mm-hmm. I believe every believer has a unique set of, of one or more yeah. spiritual gifts that the Spirit has given to every believer. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, what do you love to do and what do others in the body tell you that you're really good at? Right. Maybe your gift is encouragement. Maybe it's administration or helps or giving, whatever it is. What do you love to do and what do others say that you're really good at? Good word. Nice job, gentlemen. All right, this next question. If God can never die, does that mean that Jesus was fully human only when he died on the cross? We know that that Jesus was in existence prior to his incarnation. Yes, He was a part of the creation of the world. And so he became man— by being and still fully of God to represent God to a fallen world. So he was human for that period of time. But he is his nature, it's not a dichotomy. He's not one day God and the next day man. He's God man. That's what the scripture is clear about. Right. That's his clear identity. Yeah, I think we have to understand the, the incarnation that God became flesh, the Word became flesh, and in his incarnation, he became a man to be that perfect sacrifice. He never stopped being God. I I think of it as a king who takes off his crown and his robe, and he sets it on his throne, and he dresses himself in peasant garb, and he goes out into the kingdom. He doesn't stop being king when he's walking around as a peasant. In the same way, God never stopped being God when he put on human flesh. Um, and, and, and by the way, I think 
Christ in his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, and then his glorification, I think that's Christ's state for all of eternity yeah. from that moment on. I've heard it used as an example this way. If you were an ant and um, wanted to understand um, the gospel, let's say, what would it take for you mm-hmm. as an ant to understand it? Well, for God himself to take on the form of an ant to communicate so the ant would understand so, in essence, that's what that passage is referring to. Didn't count equality with God a thing to be held on to or grasped? Uh, he became a man and to represent God to a fallen world, mm-hmm. to show him who God is, even through a, a lens of a finite understanding. And the Bible is insistent that physical death isn't the real death. There's an eternal death. And the eternal death, you know, Jesus could die as a man at that moment for our sins, but it also says, we read in Scripture, he went and preached to the souls that were in prison. So right after his earthly body quit, he was still active in ministry. We know things were going on. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit will never eternally die. And Jesus says, the moment you believe in me, you've passed from what? Death to life. And so we all know that we still are going to die a physical death. But my life has already begun for eternity. And, and that he became a man and died a death that men die and then conquered death. It's like he, he went to death and he punched death in the face and he says, you are not going to have any more power over those who believe in me because I've conquered it once for all. So now as believers, we no longer fear death, that we the second death, what you were just describing, Scripture says, has, no longer has any power over us because Christ has conquered death once for all. Mm. Only God can take a life and only God can give a life. Right. Mm. Thank you for that. All right. The Bible says, ask and you shall receive. I asked Jesus to save my brother, but he did not. Then why did he say, ask and you shall receive? It's a tough one for a lot of people because um, a lot of times we ask and we don't see the answer to prayer. We pray for a child who's sick, and the child still dies. I think that in this context where Jesus is telling us that, we have to look deeper and understand that we're talking about eternal values, not just temporal values. Because if it was just temporal, then I would say we've got a real argument. Why didn't he answer that? But if you look at the eternal values and what Jesus is ultimately interested in, because this life is so short. I mean, we're like a cloud that appears and then gone. It goes much, much deeper than that. And so focusing on the eternal, even for the brother, is still something I would, up until the moment that brother died, I would still be asking Jesus to reach his heart. One of the toughest unanswered prayers is that of a prayer for the salvation of someone that you love, because you know that that prayer is consistent with God's will, because he doesn't want them to be lost either. But we have this little thing, it's called free will. And that person needs to believe to be saved. Uh, God doesn't even force his will that they be saved upon that person. They must choose. So Thessalonians says that people perish because they refuse to love the truth and thus be saved. So in the end, every single person's salvation requires their faith. God is knocking on the heart of their door, uh, the door of their heart, uh, but they must open that door to let him in to their life. That's a picture of salvation. Yep. So we just have about a minute left, but when you see some of the things going on in the world and the, and the hostility towards the gospel, do you ever look and think, 
do you not fear God? Well, people generally don't fear God until they're dying. <laughs> I mean that sincerely. But you're I've seen in front the, of a holy God. I've seen the toughest people in the world that would say, I don't believe in God on this until they're on their deathbed. And then suddenly the story changes. But I think a lot of people don't fear the Lord. Willful sin is always built on a foundation of arrogance. And so when you become arrogant about how you live, when you've convinced yourself that God doesn't exist, um, and you live life in accordance with your plans, it's kind of like what Solomon was talking about in the book of Ecclesiastes, where they use the phrase 29 times under the sun. What that simply means, when you live your life on a horizontal plane devoid of any vertical relationship with your Heavenly Father, everything you turn your hand to do will turn out to be meaningless. But that still doesn't mean you'll turn to God because of the insidiousness of our individuality and our willfulness and our arrogance. Mm. Hebrews 10 says that if we deliberately keep on sinning, it's basically if you reject the salvation that God has offered, all that is left is a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Yes, the fear of God should motivate the world to believe in him, but oftentimes, unfortunately, it doesn't. Yep. Nicely done, gentlemen. Thank you very much for being an awesome panel. Been our pleasure. You guys Thank you, Bill, for being an awesome host. Exceptionally by the way. well. Thanks for saying that, Jeff. <laughs> uh, Jeff Verdorn, Dr. Greg Borgon, and Pastor Tom Parrish have been my power panel today. And if you missed any of this lively discussion uh, with with dancing in studio and <laughs> one special sound effect that I've never played before and I'll probably never play again. It's all here today. So you can go to the podcast at myfaithradio.com and check it out. I have so enjoyed spending time with you today. Thank you so much. Have a great night and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.